0: And welcome to Hell is for Hyphen It's for August 2014. I am writer hyphen critic hyphen so glad we're doing a podcast about movies because I'm so depressed about the state of the world, Lee Zachariah. And with me, as always, is Hi there, everybody. I'm writer hyphen director hyphen a dame to kill for Paul Anthony Nelson. And we will be joined by our very special guest in the very next segment. But until then. Woody Allen has a, a new film out. Uh, it's that time of the year again uh, Magic in the Moonlight. The period film with uh, Colin Firth and, who was it? Emma Stone. Mm-hmm. Yes. And Australia's own Jackie Weaver. Pretty happy about that. What did you think of this?
1: Look, I think uh, Magic in the Moonlight follows in a grand tradition of Woody Allen's work in which he follows a brilliant film with a decidedly mediocre film. <laughs> Yeah, I didn't think much of this at all. He's renowned at times for kind of pulling scripts out of the drawer that he's had in there for 25 years, and this feels like one of those. Mm. It feels like, oh, yeah, I I can't come up with anything this year. Hey, I got this one. For a film that revolves around the lack of logic, it seems to honour that both in form and function, and I'm not sure whether that is intentional or not, but it didn't really work for me. I think it's beautiful to look at. I think Birth and Stone are really good, but... Yeah, it just—it I, I, sort of swung between
0: dull and silly for me. Yeah, I think you're right about the the lurching from greatness to mediocrity. It's weird because you know I love all of Woody Allen's films, even mm-hmm. the ones I don't like. I still love, and this feels like the weakest in a very long time. Yeah, like I've this is the one I've liked least since like Hollywood Ending.
1: I really, really did like. Yeah, this film. yeah.
0: Look, I'm kind of there, and I as well which, which is a shame because I think it's a great idea um, and I think there are moments that are fantastic that it never really comes together like there's no pace the dialogue is strangely in it's really clunky isn't it mm. it's really a lot of it just clangs and usually that's the saving grace in his films but uh <laughs> yeah it doesn't work here I yeah. don't know what it is and I'm like can we
1: can we dispense with the 50 something man and the 20 something woman I'm really just enough and, and and like and the 20-something woman just being besotted with the 50-something, 60-something man. And the other thing is the whole kind of letting go of the so-called perfect fiancé who we never see. Like, this film seems terrified of emotional
0: consequences, mm. which kind of bothered me a bit. Now, you didn't see Rob Reiner's And So It Goes, I know uh, I didn't. Uh, why was that? Did somebody, like, brilliant warn you against it? like
1: Somebody whose taste I normally trust, somebody who is a pillar of society, somebody who might be sitting across from me at this very moment, told me to not see it under any circumstances if I had to A, pay for it, or B, spend time on it.
0: Usually I'm like, just go see everything we're going to talk about, but this time I couldn't bring myself to it. It's it's so strange. Like This is Rob breiner's automated destruction of his legacy, continuing apace. This incident free film devoid of any dramatic tension <laughs> or, or actual comedy I, like you, you know people are worried about elaborate computer programs making screenplays, yeah, we just have random word generators giving <laughs> us screenplays at this point. It, there, there is the nonsensical dialogue in it, so it goes, that has no connection to the dialogue side of it, just <laughs> random words put together it 's just the whole film is just wealthy New England white people in crisp shirts and hats. You know, that's a genre, and it's hit its peak here. Jesus.
1: It, yeah, wasn't this from the screenwriter of the similarly titled As Good As It Gets? Oh, was it? Yeah, I think it was Mark Andrews or whatever his name is.
0: Right, yeah, and no, I, I don't know what's going on here. Like, the be, the best bit is when they try to uh, put in an element of danger and they visit um, the, the kid, uh, Sarah's heroin-addicted mother, and the depiction of the, the pause with, you know, run-down <laughs> neighbourhoods <laughs> set to ominous music. This is about... It's, it's so embarrassing to watch. It's... <laughs> It's just the cliche-ridden dismissal of anyone who doesn't fit the nuclear family model and anyone who doesn't happens to be a drug addict. <laughs> His film seem to be this weird, hermetically sealed type of film mm. of
1: late, you know, like Belle Isle and like, yeah, this sort of nuclear family, you know, white people or, or kindly elderly African-American kind of,
0: they seem to exist in an artificial world that has no relation to our own. Yeah, it's... it's- Nothing in this film remotely resembles humanity, <laughs> human life in any way. It's just, it's really bad. It's really bad. So rush out and see that, boys and girls. <laughs> yes. And yeah, as much as everyone like decries the constant comic book movies, I feel like that's the caveat we have to put every time we talk about a comic book movie. Everyone says there's so many. It's like Guardians of the Galaxy was the saving grace of this month. Okay. For me, like in terms of new releases. Yeah, yeah a big, silly space opera that is actually entertaining and is funnier than so-called comedies I've seen. Like, what is it? And and So It Goes and Magic and the Moonlight are both meant to be comedies. Yeah, yeah alleged, More alleged laughs comedies. in Guardians of the Galaxy than either of those put together. So that's something.
1: Yeah, I enjoyed the next film we're about to review more. Mm-hmm. But... It's a strange film, Guardians of the Galaxy. I spent the first half hour wondering if this was working at all. I kind of found the characters to be a bit douchey and a bit kind of very remote and the lines were sort of falling flat. But as it goes on, I really warmed to it and mm. by the end I, I, I dug the characters. I find that like most Marvel movies, the story... Evaporates from your memory instantly after seeing it. And it's very, thankfully, Guardians of the Galaxy is very driven by its characters. It does get very funny, particularly in that second half.
0: I think Chris Pratt makes a terrific lead. Yeah, Zoe Saldana's great. Everyone's really good. I I love that whenever there needs to be an improbably hued alien character, it's always Zoe Saldana. She was blue in Avatar. She's she's green in this. (laughs) She's going through
1: all the the entire spectrum. Um, (laughs) But it's weird in terms of its tone because... I feel like, at times, it's really childlike, and then at other times, it's crazily adult, like Chris Pratt's Jackson Pollock line. that had me in tears. That That was was so good. But I like that, because it was coded enough, so kids have no idea what he's talking about, but adults will be like, oh! A lot of kids just aren't ready for Jackson Pollock references. No, they're not, um, nor other things. Um, But I loved that the 70s and 80s pop culture references actually had an emotional anchor i, I really really like that and that it seemed to kind of really meld james Gunn's style with the marvel studios like in some cases very much a marvel studios plot but at the same time with these great character
0: flourishes and, and bursts of humor that we know of james gunn's work so, what is that other film that you prefer? The, the, your saving grace of the month? What was um, it? Well, the saving grace of the well, the real—I well, wouldn't say saving grace because oh, I did yeah. enjoy Guardians, but
1: the film, the month's best film for me, as I step into my car and speak to you entirely from my car phone, is Stephen Knight's Tom Hardy in a car bottle episode Lock.
0: Yep, I'm uh, gonna have to agree with you on that. I thought this was
1: terrific. Yep, I, it looks. Gorgeous. Uh, somebody described it as a, all the bokeh in the known universe. You know that... What, what is, I don't know if I'm pronouncing it correctly, but bokeh, that light-reflecting light, light refracting yeah. effect, like, yeah, is um, happening everywhere in yeah. this film. Tom Hardy is brilliant. All the people that talk to him on the phone are magnificent, including Sherlock's Andrew Scott, mm. Luther's Ruth Wilson, and Tyrannosaurus' Olivia Coleman. I picked Coleman. That was the only one I... That was the only one you picked? Yeah, yeah. Andrew Scott's fantastic. I love Scott. <laughs> but I loved how this treats... A kind of a family melodrama, like a thriller. Mm. It frames and shoots and directs it as, as a thriller is done. I have not seen that done. I thought that was really intriguing. The story of how the film was made is actually as fascinating as the film itself. Mm. They attached three cameras to the car, plonked Hardy in it, uh, put it on a low rider, and drove it around for three hours at night as Hardy went through the entire film from start to finish in wow. one take. And then all the other actors who called him were sitting in a hotel room in town calling him at timed moments. Brilliant. So as a certain man, like, they go, okay, time for you, Olivia, to give him a call. So he gives him a call and has that conversation, hangs up, and then he calls one of the others. And, yeah, so we're all sitting in a hotel room eating pizza and stuff, waiting for their moment to talk to him. It's
0: fascinating. And it's very telling what you expect going in, depending on how you react to the premise. Like, a film entirely set within a car as a guy makes phone calls. I would, like, I love those bottle films like Mm. that. Like, anything that has such a high concept in such a confined setting, I, you know, I get really excited about and I was expecting this would be a thriller where, you know, you're mm. calling you know, various people and there's a crime element to it. But somebody's the, digging up something nasty about his past that is, you know... Yeah. yeah. And you kind of think that that's, that's where it's going. And the fact that it's essentially a family drama mm. and then it's an examination of, of modern manhood in a way, both its failures mm. and its successes that are sort of the same thing at many, at many points in the films, it's just extraordinary and 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 like his character is amazing the, the choice to give him this sort of soft lilting welsh accent mm-hmm. is inspired i think and the choices he makes like as a character like the, the fact that a single lie could save him so much trouble and he doesn't do yeah. it he doesn't go there he, he won't tell a lie and gets into so much trouble you know in part because of that the juxtaposition of Lockwood, the football player the mm. story that these kids are telling him yes. about on the phone is just beautiful. Like, there's some really nice subtext mm. throughout. It's such an unexpected film and, and, and just works on every level, I think.
1: Yeah, I totally agree. I like that he's absurdly competent. He's incredibly... He has everything in control mm. and he's made this one mistake and it is taking his life apart in mm. this hour and a half. And it's like the one time he slips, everything goes away. And getting someone as... Physical and actor as Hardy and seating him basically in the same position, mm. having him, you know, having to communicate through, you know, the, the face and voice and not use that hulking. I think it's a great testament to his talent and a great reversal of what he's normally known for. Yeah. Uh, the film was tense, it was involving, it felt real, there's beautiful reality to it. Some people have said the whole he, talking to his father thing is a bit of a stretch mm. but I actually didn't mind that I felt it was needed for I, for I the, to explore his inner state and, and why he does certain things and I think Hardy pulls it off brilliantly yeah I, I love this film mm. so And joining us for our second and third segments, uh, we are extremely lucky to have uh, snagged a guest of the Melbourne International Film Festival, auteur extraordinaire Joe Swanberg. <laughs> Thank you. That's very uh, very generous. Now, the first thing we wanted to chat to about before we got into our filmmaker was... In this kind of age of independent film is obviously changing. Um, The landscape is completely altered in terms of, you know, so the studios are increasingly opting out of distributing indies and, you know, so much more is now looking toward the internet in terms of VOD and all these sort of things. And now we have um, films being financed through crowdfunding. And I'm just wondering, like, it seems like, The kind of, I guess, whatever was the independent film engine 10, 20 years ago in terms of the way it ran and how people built careers is now completely different. And to the naked eye, it seems like kind of the revenue streams are all coming in and seemingly getting harder and harder and increasingly kind of being hobbyized by a lot of people. And you being one of the most inspiringly prolific and industrious filmmakers, uh, indie filmmakers of the last decade, and very much involved in this kind of new age. How do you see independent filmmakers building a career in this new landscape?
2: Well, it's interesting. I mean, when I, you know, it was probably my freshman year of high school that I got, really, the wheels started turning in, in terms of thinking about wanting to be a director and, and you know, having a career as a filmmaker. And, you know, at the time, in the mid-90s, it just seemed like the future was totally bright and, people were going to Sundance and selling their first films for a lot of money and kind of launching, you know, mainstream careers. And then, you know, in the years that I was in film school, the bottom seemed to drop out, and by the time I graduated in 2003, there was no, you know, I mean, that that just wasn't happening anymore. I feel yeah. like the bubble, the indie film bubble had burst at that point. And so I found myself in a landscape of ease of production and lower costs for making the movie and then, you know, the near impossible challenge of then getting people to actually see the thing you made. Yeah, And so, you know, it's just the hurdle has shifted. It used to be really expensive even to make a very cheap independent film, you know, in, ter- in by today's standards, yep. you know, you had to shoot on film up until probably 97 or eight when maybe it became, we started to see stuff shot on video going to major festivals, but I was in film school from '99 to 2003. The whole time I was in film school, the debate was raging over film versus video, and you know it was. Mm-hmm. We were just starting to see people like Spike Lee and Richard Linklater shooting on you know prosumer video cameras, and so you know if if you wanted to do a feature on 16 millimeter, you were gonna you were lucky if you were gonna get out for less than maybe $75,000 at the really low end, probably it was more like $150,000 just to make what was considered an ultra-low-budget movie. And by the time I got out of film school, I made my first feature for probably $3,000. So what that meant was just a, a massive amount of production happening all of a sudden and, you know, a festival world that was overwhelmed suddenly with the high number of submissions and audiences that were overwhelmed with the options. And so... VOD emerged as a way, I think, as a way to kind of uh, accommodate all this extra work that was being made. But, you know, it splits the audience. And so in the 80s and 90s world of independent film, where there, you know, maybe of the... I'm trying to remember. I read John Pearson's book, yeah. Spike, Mike, Slackers, and Dykes, and he's got an index in the back that kind of lists all of the independent films that were made that year, which it's hard to believe you even could name them all but yeah. that was it you know 20 movies or something like that those were the independent films that saw the light of day god and you know so your audience that was hungry for something different had 20 options over the course of the entire year and now they have 20,000 options and so it's really it's just meant that you have to count on having a career before you have a career. So for me, you know, Drinking Buddies, which is a film I had out last year, is really the first film of mine that most people saw. Yeah. Outside of a kind of a hardcore cinephile audience. That's my 15th feature, I think. Yeah. yeah. And so, you know, but the whole time I was I was getting better as a filmmaker. I was making a little bit of money. And so it's just a very different landscape. But I think it's as good as it was then. It's just it's, you have to have a different attitude about it. You have to be prepared to make a lot of those five and ten thousand dollar movies, and you have to give up that dream of making a first feature, going to Sundance, selling it for a lot of money, and suddenly being given a filmmaking career. Mm. And the other thing that really changed from the days when I first start like really started paying attention to independent film is that the international presale market dried up. You know, like filmmakers like Jim Jarmusch and Hal Hartley and those guys that were that were early heroes of mine, you know, they would uh, sell the German TV rights to a movie and that's how they would fund the production of the movie. And those, you know, they would sell those rights for $300,000. And this is in the, in the late eighties and early nineties, you know, and now it's not, that's just not there anymore in that kind of way. So I think at least in terms of American independent filmmakers, you put the movies on credit cards, you do them much, you know, much cheaper than you used to. And, and then you put them up on YouTube or you, or you send them out on Vimeo and you, you go to some festivals and you just kind of keep cranking them out until you've stuck around long enough that people are forced to deal with you. That's what I feel like happened with me is just, you know, after seven years or eight years, people finally were like, all right, this guy's still here. I guess we have to start
0: watching these movies. You're almost, even though you, you sort of came up during, while that was all happening, it feels like you're sort of the first post-internet Filmmaker in a way, in that as you say, there are so many filmmakers who they make one hit and everyone goes, there you go, and you know, your fifteenth film. Like I I came up through community television, and I I sort of feel like I was part of the last wave that got noticed on community TV Uh because the year after my show got picked up on national television, suddenly there were dozens of uh, digital channels and there was internet streaming and. Yeah, as you say, the audience got divided. Right. And I don't know how you would build a career in this environment where, you know, everyone's attention is so divided. Right. Uh, yeah, it's really tricky. I mean, you
2: do it the same way, uh, you know, an ice cream shop would or a restaurant dedicated to locally sourced organic food. You know, you just kind of set up your place and then you, you exist in a neighborhood for long enough that you're become an established part of that neighborhood. And so... I think as a filmmaker, I was lucky to find a community early on of like-minded people, and, you know, we made a lot of work together, and so that was a big factor in kind of having the motivation to keep going. It's a lot like touring bands, I think, you know. Mm -hmm. If you're in an indie band, the first time you go to Cleveland, Ohio, you know, you hope that 15 people are there, but the next time you go, you hope that those 15 people come back and they bring 15 of their friends, and, Mm -hmm. and then, you know, five years in you hope that you're selling out shows in Cleveland and and so it's felt the same for me you know i've i've kind of had a career that's that's often existed on the film festival circuit and you know you kind of just you go each year to a city like for me the Maryland Film Festival in Baltimore has shown a lot of my work and you know you you kind of go and you hope each year you notice a lot of the same faces who were at your last movie and and then some new faces and eventually you kind of have established a reputation. But, you know, I feel very lucky. This is just a matter of chronological, you know, like the year I was born and the way the industry's changed, but I made a movie called Hannah Takes the Stairs, which premiered at South by Southwest in 2007 IFC, the distributor, happened to be really pushing the VOD agenda at the time. And I was in no position to be a snob about having a theatrical release versus a VOD release and was happy to embrace that new technology. And, and then, you know, that kind of ended up being the way the industry went. And so I was just lucky to be there at the beginning, you know, to have kind of happened along at that time. And I think about filmmakers now who are getting out of film school and it seems so daunting to me and and you know luckily, in the ten years since I started making movies, now i people have heard my name or they 've seen one of my movies, and so the task just gets so much easier if you 're trustworthy in some kind of way to an audience or distributor and so I cleared that hurdle, but now it 's always the problem of shifting audiences shifting technologies and tastes change and so the you know the kinds of movies that I was making early on I don't think would get into festivals now I don't think audiences would see them now and so like any artist you struggle to keep up with the time you're living in and to keep telling stories
1: that seem relevant yeah it's that Ice cream store metaphor again, isn't it? Becoming trustworthy, uh, yeah. developing a product that That's people right. want more of. That's and, right. Yeah, yeah,
2: and and a, and a, yeah, like uh, some some sort of consistency, so that I mean, I have a kid now, I have a mortgage now, like you start to think about your money in a different kind of way, and and you know, when you're asking an audience to come spend fifteen dollars to buy a ticket to your movie, it starts to make sense why people are so gun shy about independent film is because they've been burned a lot. You know, they've kind of given a movie a try and hated it, and then they feel like, well, I'll just go watch The Avengers again, because at least I know that that's going to deliver a certain level of quality, a certain whatever. So, as an independent filmmaker, you know, I don't want to be forced into making really safe Avengers, you know, like sort of low-budget Avengers movies, but, you know, you, you establish a reputation, and then even if somebody doesn't like your movie... You know, a lot of people aren't going to like Happy Christmas. A lot of people didn't like Drinking Buddies. But they they took them seriously in a different kind of way. And that's that has to do with the reputation. That has to do with the way you would about, you know, a Richard Linklater now or something like that. If somebody goes and sees Boyhood and they don't like it, they're at least forced to grapple with it. Because Richard Linklater has proven uh, over, you know, 30-year career that he's worthy of your, at least your... Uh, honest effort, yeah. and and that's a big difference from being a first or second time filmmaker, where you can you know an audience can dismiss you. They can feel like okay, that's this guy's no good. I never have to think about him again. Yeah. And so you know it's it feels comforting in a way to be to be clear of that initial hurdle, where even if people see my movies and hate them, which a lot of people do have that experience. They still have to think about them
1: ten seconds longer than they used to have to think about them. Yeah, and you've tried a number of different distribution models as well. It's interesting. You've had films premiere on Vimeo for free. You've tried a um, a box set at one point Mm -hmm. of of your films for Mm -hmm. a certain year and kind of like a loyalty program. Yeah, and you've and now you're currently working with the iTunes model. Yeah, it's it's sort of I guess. Again, you're, you're this great example for the next generation because you're trying out so many of these different avenues. How many of those are sort of circumstance and how many of those are you exploring which one works best? Well, I'm
2: pretty into exploring. I definitely... And, I, you know, I'm, I'm uh, in the fortunate position of, of being a, the kind of filmmaker that makes a lot of work, which allows me a lot of opportunity to explore. It's a really different scenario uh, for a filmmaker who maybe makes a movie once every three years... To just try putting something on Vimeo and seeing how that goes, you're really asking a lot of that person to take their sole creative output for a long period of time and just like you know, put it all on black and spin the wheel. So uh, because I have a lot of stuff, I've I can try out different things, and so I've tried you know I've just tried to be experimental and say there's three movies that I know will be coming out in the next 18 months. Let's see if all three of them have different you know, avenues towards an audience. Which one seems to connect? And I think the answer is all of them are connecting. It's just different sizes of audience and, and different expectations for the money. You know? So the movie that I, Marriage Material that I put on Vimeo, uh, a lot of people have seen. And I, you know, I've never made any money off of that movie. I never will make any money off of that movie. But I didn't spend much money on that movie. And so, you know, it's it was uh, creatively fulfilling and ultimately the thing I wanted most for the movie was for an audience to see it and Vimeo was a perfect platform for that. If I had needed that movie to recoup $100,000 or something, I would be incredibly frustrated right now uh, because that's not going to happen. But I'm pretty realistic. I've attempted to be, at least, pretty realistic about the financial prospects of independent films right now. And so I've... I've done my best not to get myself in a scenario where a movie has to recoup a lot of money. Mm-hmm. It's very hard. Very few movies per year make back more than they cost to make. You know, I mean, it's yeah. really... It's, uh, it's a pretty high-stakes gambling
1: world, so... I, I love everything you said. I just refuse to believe that nobody likes drinking buddies.
2: Uh, yeah, well, check <laughs> Twitter. There's, uh, there, are, there are plenty of people... It's it's interesting because you know having Olivia Wilde in that movie, having Anna Kendrick in that movie, having Jake and Ron in that movie, it was like a wolf in sheep's clothing. You know, I, don't, I think a lot of people did not expect to see an independent film, especially a low budget independent film they thought they were going to get a really safe, comfortable, romantic comedy. Mm -hmm. And so there's something really exciting in a kind of punk rock way about that. Like, we tricked people into watching the kind of movie they would never Mm -hmm. watch. And so that turned a lot of people on, maybe, to, you know, the kind of movie that they don't normally see. But for a lot of the audience, they felt tricked. And they, you know, they really responded in a negative way to that. And I, you know, I sympathize. I don't want people to have a bad time when they see my movie. It doesn't give me pleasure to have taken their money and given them, in exchange, something they didn't like. But for me, at least, a lot of the movies that became my favorite movies or became really important, influential movies for me, I didn't like the first time I saw them. You know, there was something going on in the movie that was pushing me outside of my comfort zone. And Mm -hmm. so... My only hope for those people who hated Drinking Buddies, and this is probably a pipe dream, but, you know, is that it stays with them. Or, you know, they hated it so much that they can't stop thinking about it. And eventually it kind of seeps in in this other kind of way. And maybe if they're artists, it maybe pushes them in their own work. Or if they're just viewers, it maybe reorients their kind of calibration. And, you know, I think it's for a lot of people, maybe the lowest budget movie they had ever watched, you know? And so, uh, maybe it kind of shifts the scale of what they're open to.
1: Mm. I had it so much, they come out on the other side.
2: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, we'll see. <laughs> I'm not holding my breath, but that would be nice.
0: All right, Joe, please tell us, who have you picked for your... Hell is for Hyphen, it's Filmmaker of the Month.
2: Uh, I have picked Paul Mazursky, my, uh, one of my heroes, and definitely the
0: maker of my favorite movie, Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice. Awesome. Excellent. I Yeah, I'd seen so few. I knew him as an actor primarily. Uh-huh. I'd seen so few of his films before you picked him. And just going through them all, just mind-boggling, particularly his 1970s films. Yeah. Like, yeah, Bob and Carol and Alex in Wonderland and Bloom and Love. Yeah. And, Harry and Tonto, and Next Stop Greenwich Village, and uh, Tempest—films uh-huh. like that—just mind blowing. Yeah, the, the the quality that um, he had right out of the gate. Yeah,
2: he. Uh, well, what's cool about him? One of the things I really like about him is similar to Robert Altman. He started his feature filmmaking career in his forties. You know, he had he had already had a career as a young actor. He was in Kubrick's first movie. Yeah. Uh, he was in Blackboard Jungle. He uh, he wrote for the Danny Kay Show for a long time. You know, I mean, he he did uh, stand-up comedy and all this performance in New York. Like, really a guy who had lived a life and, you know, had a wife, had kids, and then uh, became a feature filmmaker. And so I really, you know, I'm in a way I'm always... I have admiration for these people who sort of find their thing after having done a lot of other things. And mm-hmm. so... When you see a movie like Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice, it seems so shocking to me that that's a first film. But in a way, it's not a first film. It's a really different kind of first film than somebody who's 29 and makes a first film. And, and you know, he had just had a lot more life experience. He was wiser, older and wiser. But, yeah, once he got going, I mean, there's a, just a string of great films and really recognizable films. One of the reasons I chose him and, and he's been... For me, uh, somebody I've talked a lot about in the past couple years, is that in film school, I w- was never made to watch one of his movies. His name is shockingly not amongst that hip crowd of 70s Hollywood filmmakers that everybody's so obsessed with, like Spielberg, Lucas, Coppola, Hal Ashby, William Friedkin, Peter Bogdanovich. You know, there's this kind of hip in crowd of these, like, you know, new Hollywood. 70s directors, and for some reason, Paul Mazursky's name does not come up. Even though his movies were being nominated for Oscars, his movies were huge box office successes, his movies were also, you know, critically respected, I don't know why he didn't survive the 80s and 90s in terms of reputation. Like, uh, for me, something like Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice, or An Unmarried Woman, or Harry and Tonto... Uh, should have been mandatory viewing when I was in film school. You know, he he, he should be uh, spoken of as one of the gods of that 70s new Hollywood. And and he worked with those guys. You know, Paul Mazursky wrote The Monkees, the pilot of The Monkeys. Mm-hmm. Like, he came, you know, he and Larry Tucker came up with the name The Monkey. You know, like, he's really culturally very much part of that uh, easy rider, hip, like, kind of well, new the, Hollywood. And, well, BBS, uh, uh, you know, the Raphael yeah, schneider are yeah, uh, generally yeah. considered the place where the new Hollywood is born. Absolutely, anyway. absolutely. He's right there in the action with mm. those guys. And so, you know, in a way, it's, like, a, become a mission of mine to make sure that young filmmakers know his work because it's really valuable work. And there's su- there's it's such humanist work, you know. They're really amazing female characters amazing stories that are of their time, that are, that are very relevant. Something like Bloom and Love, you know, the main woman in that movie is a social worker. They're very relevant movies and maybe it's his attitude or maybe it's the fact that in the 90s he had trouble getting new work made. But, you know, he really dropped off of a lot of radars and, and, you know, he died recently, a couple weeks ago, I think. And, you know, it didn't create the kind of career retrospectives that I think you would see if Steven Spielberg died Mm -hmm. or if Peter Bogdanovich died or something like that, where, you know, my guess is that most of the repertory cinemas would immediately kind of jump on uh, doing career retrospectives and kind of reappraising that work, and, you know, Mazursky kind of died quietly, and, you know, I just don't... I don't
0: feel like he gets the respect he deserves. I was wondering if some of that was to do with, like... Probably his uh, his biggest hit was Down and Out in Beverly Hills. A lot of people have seen uh, scenes from Mall. He's sort yeah, of seen Moscow as a very Moscow and the
2: Hudson. Was yeah, a big, you know, sort
0: of early in Robin Williams' feature film career. And maybe most people know him from that uh, period yeah. and don't realize that he right. had this incredible. Right. Right. And like a, a lot of those early films were really interesting in the way they sort of touch on his favorites. Like Alex in Wonderland is a you know like Stardust Memories. It's a yeah. remix of Eight and a Half. Yeah, uh, Bloom and Lovers. So much. Uh, so, so many allusions to Death in Venice. Yeah, and they're so I don't know literary like the characters uh-huh. are so rich uh-huh. and uh, yeah it, it, it's yeah I, I I agree that it's extraordinary you, that work is not as hallowed as yeah.
2: well and it's interesting because at the time it was you know he's not um, he's not an obscure filmmaker he's not somebody who kind of like maybe Cassavetes is as a director. You know, like Cassavetes is so beloved within the filmmaker community, but in terms of audiences, you know, like Cassavetti's work never made much money, nobody really saw it at the time. But you know, Mazurski's work was very popular. And so that's the that's I think the thing that's been most surprising to me is that for somebody who made that many hit films, he's he's so seems so
0: unknown these days. There's, there's also the fact that in the 90s, the sheen kind of came up. You know, he made a lot of yes. films that, you know, there was uh, the, the Pickle, yeah. which was a, another almost another eight and a half. Yeah. But, yeah. Right. Yeah, and no. even scenes from a mall and, yeah, and, and, and Rude
1: Over was not quite I up know. to his earlier stuff. Yeah. Well, I had the pleasure
2: of meeting him recently. In March, I was able to show a new DCP restoration of Bob and Carol and Ted Now and interview Mazursky afterwards. And. He's kind of an asshole, and I think that that has uh, a lot to do probably with why he's not beloved in the way that some of these other guys are. You know, he's, he's very bitter about the film industry. He certainly is happy to speak his mind about people. And so, you know, it started to make maybe a little more sense to me why in the 90s when he started having trouble getting films made... He probably burned some bridges. He probably had a lot of arguments with people that resulted in a refusal to work with him. And it was unfortunate to to see that he took his lack of later success personally and, and kind of formed, I think, a grudge against the industry and a feeling of having gotten the short shrift or something like that. And, you know, I, I was hoping to... I think he was 84 when he died, right? So maybe I, I think he he was 83 in March when I interviewed him, and you know I was hoping to find somebody at the end of their career who was really uh, you know open to talking about the work and uh, feeling like like you know he had lived a nice long life and made a lot of movies and and had that sort of success, but it, he wasn't that way at all. I mean he was he really. Wasn't very open about the work. I mean, I, you know, Bob and Carol and Ted Analysis is my favorite movie. I had so many questions for him. And, you know, he sort of just did a stand-up comedy routine. He was very well rehearsed. He had his stories, and they were funny, and he got his laughs from the audience. But every time I tried to pry beneath the surface, he immediately closed up and sort of wouldn't go off script, really. And that, that said to me that he just, you know, wasn't that open of a person, you know, he was protective of, of a lot of that stuff. And I think that the industry's changed in in that way. You know, you're, you're not, uh, I don't meet a lot of directors like that anymore who say that, you know, the work is there on the screen. My personal life is off limits. And, and, you know, in a way he, he kind of remained an actor his, his whole career. And I think he, I think he, wanted to have an acting career, maybe more than he wanted to have a directing career. And it just so happened that he was more successful as a director. But there was a performance aspect to him as a person that very much was still an actor and still doing
0: a and a after his movie was a chance to perform, more yeah. than it was a chance
2: to really open up about
0: the work. Well, it's, it's interesting because his last film was actually a documentary in 2006 called Uh, Yippee, Mm -hmm. which I should mention uh, we got a copy from from the uh, National Center for Jewish Film in New York and we'll we'll put a link up if anyone wants to order that. But I found it really interesting because it's his only documentary. Uh, He does have that very rehearsed, as you say, you know, he had a routine and you can see that on film and he's almost making fun of himself for always telling the same stories. But I found that uh, uh, in his autobiography, Show Me the Magic, his, the story of his life, it, it's very straightforward, but when he tells the story of his life, it's just scenes I've seen in his films. Yes. And, it's, and I almost feel like all of his best films cribbed from his life, and once he ran out of life yeah. to crib from, that's when his career sort of yeah. went down a bit. So it sort of feels appropriate that his last film was just, here's what I'm doing right now. Yeah, You know, this is me this is <laughs> yeah, day yeah, to yeah. day. Yeah. yeah. I totally agree, and it's really,
2: uh, it's interesting to think about that you know, in terms of any artist's career where the autobiography is inspiring the work. And there's something about wealth and fame and success that gets less and less interesting to an audience. And I think, you know, throughout the 70s as he... Uh, became a rich and famous filmmaker he probably the autobiographical work became less interesting to people and you know he either was not encouraged to tell those stories or didn't feel like telling them but you see in that earlier work that kind of that striving for success and really grappling with the times you know in Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice sort of grappling with this late 60s free love openness which is really amazing and then in Alex in Wonderland what, I'm, what I find so impressive about that movie is it's a film about a filmmaker who's just had a hit with their first film and is trying to figure out what their second film is going to be about. It's a really ballsy thing to do. And... Uh... And then, you know, you see in Next Stop, Greenwich Village, that return to autobiography of his younger days, and yeah, it's really it's really exciting stuff, and it feels very fresh, but you know, I agree, it, it kind of becomes calcified over time, and and in his books, you know, I've, I read that one, and then I read Mazurski on Mazurski, or you know, there's a, a book that's a series of interviews, and... It is the same stories over and over again, and, and told in exactly the same way. He's kind of perfected those moments, and so it, it makes sense to me that, that you know, over the course of his career, he's told all the stories. and he's yeah. run out of those stories to tell. I don't know. But yeah. the thing that
1: fascinates me about a lot of his career is his, his, his filmography seems to be a real catalogue of imperfect men. Like mm-hmm. men who are, go from being flawed to just terrible. Yeah. You know, uh Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice, you've got Robert Culp's kind of, you know, aging swinger and yeah. and then you've you know, he's Yeah, wannabe sw-
2: swinger. Like, yeah. like yes.
1: really really tries and fails to be a swinger. <laughs> and just like really. the clothing is so like this kind of going for this Peter Fonda thing, but yeah. just looking like yeah. trying way too yeah. hard. Yeah. Uh, Alex in Wonderland. Um, Alex is actually quite horrible to his to his wife. Like he's always, he's really argumentative. He uses yeah. his creative block as a way to kind of get at her, and she spends most of the film really upset. Yeah. Um, Bloom in Love. You know, he winds up raping his girlfriend. Uh, yeah. Yeah, his, his ex-wife. His ex-wife, and His ex wife. His ex wife. Yeah. And that one's batshit
2: crazy. I mean, yeah. I, I you know I there's parts of Bloom in Love that are the best work he's done. I think. You know, it's yeah. really. Chris Christopherson's amazing in yeah, that movie. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's really an exciting movie. And then, you know, you get to the end and I, it's very difficult to figure out what the hell he was thinking
0: or how well, my, my all my characters exactly end up the same. Well, we way. We actually, yeah, we, we, Paul and I were debating this after we both watched it because uh, we had very different reactions to it. And my feeling was that it was a, uh, very much a film about um, somebody getting what he wants by doing... Uh, Sort of an increasing series of bad decisions, and the decisions get worse and worse and worse, and they work, and it's and it's almost you know literary. It feels like Jonathan Franzen's novel in a way. It's a world without karma, essentially. Yeah, Yeah. anti-karma. Very,
2: very bizarre. And yeah, it's uh, it's really a a divisive one. I mean, it's very it's very hard for me to even recommend that movie to people because its gender politics are so fucked up, and it's Mm -hmm. really you know I mean. It's crazy. The ending of that movie is crazy, but then you know, at the same time, he's so in touch with what's going on, and and even ha- you know, having the central character be this Beverly Hills divorce lawyer is so interesting to me. You know, he's just uh, these characters he creates are so fascinating, and 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 yeah, but that that one really does seem to kind of slide off the deep end. And he talks about it in his book, you know, I mean, he, he he's very aware of the fact that he lost a lot of the audience with some of those decisions. But but then he, yeah, he does kind of... Uh, remains a kind of divisive filmmaker throughout. And I think he there's some part of his personality that really enjoys that kind of provocation. And, uh, you know, it, it hits and misses
1: throughout his career. Mm. Mm. I think he's... Un- like, for me, I... I really um, dug an unmarried woman. Uh-huh. I felt that was kind of his masterpiece. That
2: one feels for me. really dated to me. It's really? interesting. I I like a lot of it, and yeah. I'm a big Jill Claiborne fan. Mm-hmm. And you know, I mean, there's, it's a pretty great movie, but it's long. I think it's it's really uh, a little indulgent in a way that I don't think her some of his earlier movies are. And. And also the the like jazz score to that movie is so oppressive mm. in its... Uh, who is it? Howard Shore? Uh, I, can, I don't know. I trying remember. It's a really famous yeah. composer. Bill, Bill, Cont- oh, Bill Conti. Oh, yeah. oh yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Bill Conti. It is Bill Conti. Yes. Uh, and it's this very 70, like yeah. saxophone heavy yeah. kind <laughs> of like... There are just aspects of that movie that seem like really uh, bad decisions in terms of how they've aged, but... Uh, the content of the movie is amazing, and, and you know, he really, uh, the subject matter seemed unexplored at the time, and I think that just, ha- you know, providing a chance for a lot of women to talk about yeah. that yeah. is amazing. I mean, it's a heroic film in that way, you know, it's really, really cool, but there, there's just, like, too many things. There's also a lot of bad ADR in that movie. I don't know if yeah. you noticed, yeah. but... There's scenes where the dubbing, the post-dubbing doesn't even attempt to match lip-sync. And it's a really, you know, it wasn't, there wasn't home video at the time. You know, there was not an expectation that these movies would be scrutinized in that kind of way. You know, people would go and see them in the movie theater once or twice. And then, you know, they kind of like disappeared. And now, you know, these days you look at it on home video and it seems
0: really sloppy but. We, we actually rewound uh, a bit uh, Harry and Tonto mm-hmm. where a character calls another a bitch and I went hang on that's not what the mouth yeah. is saying <laughs> so we looked at it yeah wow okay you really yeah. tried to go for the C word yeah. like, oh, yeah. <laughs> totally. that's one of the things I love about An
1: Unmarried Woman there's a few actors in that. It's like, you would only get a job in film in the 70s. Uh-huh. Like, her therapist, in yeah. particular, is such a bizarre-looking person. Yeah. It's like, that is such a great 70s I can't remember, price. is it the
2: same therapist from Bob and Carol and Ted No, now? no, no that's okay. not the
1: guy that did yeah. like, four movies. I like <laughs> think he's, he's, that was real, that was a real therapist. Yeah. He's a real
2: so the therapist. He's so amazing in Bob and Carol and Ted yeah. Now. Yeah. That yeah. guy is, again, somebody who yeah. is not movie-friendly in a normal kind of yeah. way, but his presence is amazing. You know, yeah. he's a real... Person and that registers so strongly But I think Miss casting was always really cool You know, I think he uh, Occasionally these people seem miscast uh, And, you know, the, the most interesting thing that I learned From talking to him after that screening Was that uh, he wrote Alex in Wonderland for Elliot Gould And Elliot Gould wouldn't do the movie And so Donald Sutherland got that role But if you rewatch Alex in Wonderland and picture Elliot Gould in the movie, it makes perfect sense. Yeah. And so, again, like, I love Donald Sutherland. It's hard to say he's miscast because I think he's a great actor, but but that movie would be better with Elliot Gould. And it was meant to have Elliot Gould. And I have to agree. So, yeah, there's like, you know, you sort of see Mazursky land where a lot of filmmakers do where they sort of end up with the reality of the industry you, you know there's only a few actors that can star in these big Hollywood movies in terms of the studio approving them yeah. and so if Elliot Gould says no suddenly your options are really limited the same way these days you know if you write a movie for Brad Pitt and Brad Pitt ends up backing out there's only four or five other actors that that are going to kind of promise the same box office none of them are much like Brad Pitt mm-hmm. and so you know you it's tricky when you're a specific enough filmmaker that you really can capture the voice of somebody. So, you know, as an exercise to people, I would say track down Alex in Wonderland and watch it and just in your head picture <laughs> Elliot Gould saying and doing all of those things and that movie suddenly is is a lot better. And I already think it's a great movie, but I think
0: it would have been a masterpiece with Elliot Gould. I think it would have been perfect. Well, it's it's interesting cuz William Phil in 1980s remake of Jules and Jim like i i don't find the leads that compelling and then afterwards discovering that his uh, uh, intended casting was Woody Allen and Al Pacino. Yeah. Oh wow. Yeah. yeah. And want right. to get like Ray Sharkey and somebody yeah. else. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
1: yeah. Yeah. It's super interesting that and, and been I, amazing. I i think oh. a lot of
2: films you know in the history of Hollywood have fallen victim to this of of ending up with great actors but
0: just the wrong great yeah. actors. Mm. I, I, I did look up like I don't put a lot of uh, stock in you know, who won an Oscar, you know, because a great performance is a great performance. But after an unmarried woman, I did look up like how the hell did Jill Clayburgh not win for this? Who yeah. beat her? And she was beaten by Jane Fonda, which is funny because they have a conversation, which is sort of disparaging Fonda in the film. Yeah. So I thought that was uh, quite prescient. Uh,
2: yeah.
0: Was it Clue? Is that what? No, uh, that was, um, no, it was uh, the John Void Vietnam uh, coming, oh, coming coming home. Home. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Cool. Um, but, yeah, in terms of influence, I do think that, uh, that you know, I mean, obviously, uh, Drinking Buddy certainly yeah. has... There's a lot of Bob and Carol and sure. Alice For there. sure, for A friend of ours actually lined up the posters.
1: Yeah. And mm-hmm. it was like, wow, yeah. I never yeah, noticed yeah, that yeah. before. Yeah. So what's
2: amazing about that is that that was an accident that, uh, that ended up being perfect. You know, like, it's one of those things where... If I had gone to the poster photo shoot for Drinking Buddies saying, I want to recreate Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice, somehow we would have screwed it up. But I never even brought it up. This was actually, you know, the photographer uh, positioned them that way and took that photo. And then when I looked at them side by side, I was like, wow, this (laughs) couldn't match up any better. It's complete happenstance. I'm not kidding. Wow. I never once brought it up, wow. and so there's something about it that, that made me feel really excited to think that inadvertently a movie that had influenced it so heavily also then ended up with a poster that that's so similar. So but just I think the DNA is yeah, the same. yeah, yeah, it's yeah. Like that it just was in the air, you know, it's it like bound happen. Yeah. to happen that way. But I also think that that Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice image is so iconic mm. that uh, you know it's it's just uh, in people's subconscious anyway. I mean that that. That shot of the four of them in bed is a really uh, pretty famous yeah. mm. movie image. I think. So, what about that? Is your favorite film? Like, what is it that really kind of appeals to you? It's a couple things. I think it's uh, the characters are are incredibly complex and adult characters. I love the idea. You know, at that movie. I've had a just probably a relationship with that movie that a lot of people have, which is that when I was a kid, before I had seen it. You know, it was kind of in the culture as this, like, sexual revolution kind of important old Hollywood movie with, you know, famous people in it that was this kind of risque, swingery sort of thing. And so, you know, I feel like probably, like, growing up, I loved Mad Magazine. Like, probably my first exposure to that was reading some old issue of Mad Magazine where it was referenced. And then, you know, it wasn't until, like I say, like... Nobody during film school ever said to me, "You should watch Bob and Carol in Ten Alice. it's a great movie. It just always was this kind of joke movie. you know, it was kind of like represented a bygone time and mm-hmm. uh, and so I always thought of it as this goofy swinger's comedy or something, you know, and then I finally watched it boy, i don't know. I was already making films professionally by the time I saw it for the first time, and I remember liking it and being surprised by what it was, but I think at the time, I, you know, my wife and I watched it together, and I think we watched it because we were in the mood for a kind of goofy comedy, and then it wasn't that. You know, it was much more complex than that. Mm-hmm. And so my first experience with the movie was, was you know, I, I admired it, but it wasn't what I had been in the mood for that night. And then it wasn't until years later that I finally watched it again, and it completely blew my mind. Mm-hmm. I mean, I I don't know how I had seen it and not recognized it. As a really, I mean for me A masterpiece, my favorite movie you know. And and then re-watching it I couldn't, it was one of those experiences Which I've had with a few movies In my life where I watched it, I couldn't stop thinking about it I watched it again the next day I still couldn't stop (laughs) thinking about it I watched it again the next day I just became completely obsessed with it And you know, the more I watched it The better I thought it was And I, I just couldn't believe that it had been such a massive hit. I mean, today it would be considered a, a dramedy, an indie dramedy or something mm. like, you know, the way Drinking Buddies landed mm. with people, which is like, it had its fans, it had its detractors, but ultimately it kind of existed on the periphery of the mainstream, mm. kind of squarely in the independent film world where, you know, cinephiles saw it and then people maybe just outside the circle of cinephiles and... But, you know, Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice was a massive hit the year it Mm -hmm. came out. It was nominated for four Oscars. It made a ton of money. It was really culturally a huge deal, you know, the way that I would say, like, Lena Dunham's Girls is culturally a big deal. You know, it's like, even if you've never seen Girls, you understand that it's part of the conversation Mm -hmm. right now, and that it's, you know, being discussed uh, in a really big way, and I think that Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice had that kind of effect, where you know, you were sort of forced to have an opinion on it, mm. even if you hadn't seen the movie. And and even you as a kid were aware of it. Absolutely. Yeah. Like, its cultural influence was that big that, yeah. you know, like, I knew its name and its reputation, mm. even though I didn't know the work itself. And it's my favorite movie now because I think he does a lot of things that I that I really like. He never forgets that he's making a comedy, mm. even when the movie gets serious, which I think is something that I've really taken to heart these days to try and remember that, um, often you can get away with, uh, with much heavier subject matter if you remember to make the audience laugh every mm. once in a while. And he tells the story of adults. They, they are married. They have children. Mm. These are not uh, safe kind of, you know, late 20s, let's dabble with swinging kind of people. Mm-hmm. There are real stakes, which is... These days, I don't think you would get away with. I think movies have just become really reductive. If you're going to tell a movie about uh, two married couples that are thinking about having sex with each other, that would be all the movie could be about. Mm -hmm. And there's this obsession with likability within the industry right now that I'm dealing with in my own career because, you know, as my movies are finding a bigger audience and as I'm starting to work, you know, within the industry to some degree, this is a word that I hear a lot that just sends shivers up my spine. Like, mm-hmm. the character's not likable enough. I don't know what that means. No, mm-hmm. I don't I, I think anyone does. And <laughs> I don't, I, I, yeah, I don't think either. And I don't think that audiences are as obsessed with likability as studios are right yeah. now. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's part of the adventure of of you know, watching a movie is maybe taking a character who's a little unlikable and redeeming that person, or taking a character who's very likable and degrading that person. Mm-hmm. You know, it's sort of like you know we want to see somebody go on a journey, and that journey can encompass some bad behavior, and you know that the idea now of having a scene, you know, in the beginning of Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice. Robert Kolb's character comes home from this trip to San Francisco, and he's slept with this woman who's working on this documentary that he's making. But before we learn that information, he gets home and he plays with his four-year-old son. Hmm. And, you know, he kind of gets in bed with his wife, and then his kid comes in, he gives his kid a present that he's brought home, and then he goes and he tucks his kid in. The time it spends on developing this paternal relationship with this Mm. child is really amazing Mm. it's really beautiful and then the following scene he tells his wife that he slept with this woman they have a big conversation about sex like this is so domestic Mm. and true to life and it just doesn't seem like there's space in the movies for a scene like this anymore you know I, i just i can already like imagine the executive at the studio saying we can't Put a kid in the middle of this scene. Yeah, it's okay. too. It will turn people off. It's too uncomfortable. If he's going to cheat on his wife, he can't. They can't have this happy family existence. You know, there has to. We have to see the strain in their marriage. We have mm-hmm. to. What you know? It's really amazing to me how much room he finds for complexity and how much room uh, he finds <laughs> to let these married couples, these two married couples in this movie. Have real relationships that re- that register to me as a married person myself and as a mm-hmm. father myself that seem totally realistic and complex. And also, I think the cinematography in the movie is amazing. It's uh, Charlie Lang shot it, who's had a really long career in Hollywood. I, you know, this uh, it's Mazursky's first movie. It's sort of towards the end of Charlie Lang's career mm-hmm. and. Because he had to have all these pros established. Yeah, that's right. Like They didn't trust him with this movie unless he surrounded himself with these experts. But it really helps the movie. You see what a good Mm -hmm. cinematographer can do for Mm -hmm. a young director and... um, it's just shot in this really beautiful kind of naturalistic way and it's still it's a comfortably a Hollywood movie it's got a lot of, you know nice camera movement everything's well lit but it's mm. it it's lived in you know it's not a flashy kind of movie it's mm-hmm. really it seems to take its time with everything and then also I think the performances are amazing I think Elliot Gould's incredible in it. I think Diane Cannon's incredible in it. Especially that scene in the bedroom together is one of the most amazing things things I've ever seen. Yeah, That scene is like 12 minutes long or something, Mm. and it's so great. So much happens. There's so many twists and turns (laughs) in it. The shifting uh, power between the two. It's really amazing, and it's so funny the whole time, but there's real character stuff Mm. going on. Mm. Mm. That also seems to get lost in his work over time. The sense of humor goes out of those movies, Mm. and one of the reasons why I think I'm so enamored with Bob and Carol and Ted and Alex and Alex in Wonderland and then also the the movie that he that Mazurski and Larry Tucker wrote, uh, which Mazurski was going to direct, called I Love You, Alice B. Toklas, and uh, the studio wouldn't let him direct that movie. But, mm. I, you know, I, in a way I consider that his first feature. His his fingerprints are all over it. Yeah, you know? yeah. But, you know, it's this Peter Sellers vehicle and Larry Tucker, who, you know, Mazursky didn't talk about when I interviewed him. And they stopped working together after Alex in Wonderland. But, you know, my suspicion is that Larry Tucker brought a lot of this sense of humor to these movies and that Mazursky was a much more serious kind of filmmaker. And Mm. I think you see it in his work. They're always funny. He's definitely a very funny guy. But there's a kind of a mischief and a, a, I don't know what to say about it, but there's a a lightness and a kind of effervescence to the humor of those first three movies that Larry Tucker mm-hmm. co-wrote that I don't really see in the later movies, yeah, you it's know. Like,
1: it's a little bit more surreal, isn't it? Light-based. Yeah, it is, yeah. And it's more of
2: that late 60s time, too, mm-hmm. I think. You know, there's a kind of a hippie carefreeness to the to that stuff that that really registers for me, mm-hmm. and it doesn't... I, I mean, I love so many of Mazursky's movies after that, but uh, I miss it, you know, yeah. and I, I, I sort of miss that voice, and I can only... Without knowing for sure, I
0: sort of attribute it to Larry Tucker. I think his influence is big in that early work. Yeah. No, I can see that. It's, I, I wonder if even though Mazursky isn't really known amongst film fans, that he uh, filmmakers certainly know him because you know, in addition to, to you with drinking buddies, you can see next stop Greenwich village is all over the Coen brothers inside Mm Lewin Davis, an unmarried woman. I guarantee Kenneth Lonergan saw that before he made Margaret. Mm -hmm. You know, I can feel the influence in films, Mm -hmm. the great films Mm -hmm. of today. Well, and Woody Allen says so
2: too. And and Woody Allen acted for Mazursky and very much was a fan of Mazursky's early movies. Mm -hmm. And I think they were really influential on, on his early work. Definitely. I think he is a filmmaker's filmmaker. And that is who I talked to. Like, uh, Lena Dunham, I know, is a huge fan, and uh, James Ponsult, who did The Spectacular Now, mm-hmm. and Smash is a big Mazurski fan. Like, he definitely still exists for some of us, at, you know, as this big, important person, but, but yeah, the reputation seems to not... Expand much wider than that mm. from other filmmakers.
0: Well, hopefully we can change that. Yeah, this. nice.
2: <laughs> well, Joey, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, my pleasure. It's uh, nice to talk to you guys. Always great to talk about Mazursky. <laughs> uh, and uh, yeah, I would I would put in a plug for Elaine May too. As somebody I know, you guys have already talked about her. But <laughs> That's <laughs> She and Mazursky are my two. You know, they're like my two clauses now to get people to to really reassess their
0: careers and uh, and realize that they're the best. <laughs> And we'll see the rest of you next month. If it weren't for fornication and blood, we wouldn't be here.